Welcome everyone to the Academic Operations Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Wenig, co-founder and CEO of Course Dog. I'm super excited to be joined by Colin Marlair today. Colin has gone through nine LMS integrations, three SIS integrations, and he is the provost of Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. Colin, we're super happy to have you. I'd love to, for you to do a little introduction and then we'll dive right in. Thanks so much for having me, Justin. I, I really appreciate and look forward to the conversation. I love talking about the intersection of technology and academics because I think it really matters. Awesome. So Colin, I'd love to just kick this off. I know that you're very tech forward. You're someone that's been through a lot of these implementations and you've worked in a variety of roles that intersect with technology and working with faculty. How does this approach, how you approach you know, adopting technology as a provost at your current institutions? What are those like hard fought lessons that you've, you've sort of won over the years? That's a great question. And I would say there's definitely a lot of areas of being a provost that, that obviously don't touch on technology. And it's important to build skills across all those different areas. And I've really benefited by kind of existing at a, almost every level of academics, all the way from a professor, my PhD is in English Lit, up through the administrative ranks. So I've, I've led programs, I've built programs, I've built schools. Um, but I think there are some consistent themes that connect really well. One of the things is you're constantly, as a provost, you're constantly in a process of change management. Whatever the change is, you're constantly thinking about sort of how we evolve as an institution. And that thought process is only accelerated. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about COVID, but really it started accelerating even before that. You know, just everything is moving a lot faster in the way higher ed institutions need to evolve and respond as the students change, as the culture changes, everything changes. The, so as part of that change management, I think you're constantly thinking about sort of strategic planning and you're thinking about sort of, you know, what we can achieve based on a finite capacity and limited resources. And you're always constantly thinking about, okay, what can I do in the next three months, the next six months? the next year, two years, five years, and you really have to think across all those different time cycles. And technology, thinking about technology in that context, like what, what are the quick hits? What are the quick wins? What are the things that we need to do, but we're not gonna be able to do overnight? And you constantly have to be thinking about all of that. Totally, and, and kind of digging in here, you mentioned change management, which I know is something that's on every institution's mind. It's even on my mind as a you know, company that that builds tools for higher ed and, and, and thinking about how much the industry is changing with the students and, you know, issues with, with retention, with changing enrollment dynamics, with new technologies, COVID. I'd love to hear a little bit about the types of resistance that you face from faculties when it comes to implementing new technologies or business processes. And how do you approach these challenges? Are there frameworks that you have, you know, hey, we try to sit down with everyone or we try to talk one-to-one -to, -one to everyone. Like, we'd love to just get in the weeds and understand your kind of change management framework. There's so much to unpack in that question, and it is a deep and yeah. wide one, so I will try to be brief. I am famous for needing to cut myself off because my literature background is Dickens and Austin and things like that, so I love talking. <laughs> Always a challenge. I, I think I would start with a statement of support for faculty, and that is I think there's probably two or th three things that we have to remember. Two or three things I, I think I would put on the table is first, we can tend to forget that they came into higher education for absolutely every reason other than technology. 
right? They are there for their passions. They are there to reach students. They are there to spend time in their curriculum and discipline. And they absolutely did not go into higher ed because they wanted to go be a technology evangelist. That's just a reality, right? And then I think the other piece of the challenge is every faculty has a bad implementation experience in their past, whether it's at this institution or another, or even whether if it's just them as an individual consumer, they have a context of you know, a software they were forced to adopt, you know, in their personal life or in their professional life, and a lack of support, a lack of buy-in, a lack of training, a lack of awareness and communication, and anything that you do stands on the shoulders of all of those bad experiences, right? Those two, and there is sort of, in academics, there is sort of, I would say, an intrinsic dubiousness around the role of technology in academics, right? Because it wasn't so big, call it 10, 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, fundamentally, there was just something about higher education that wants to see itself is in nuance and beyond sort of things that go within, you know, simple categories, et cetera. So literally, one of the things that I love about higher education is it is such a difficult space to be a leader in because faculty are entrepreneurs themselves, right? They're very independent and there's a culture and there's dynamics and there's all those things. And so when you talk about like an approach, one of the things that I've sort of evolved into over the years, and it's actually something I'm really passionate about, is I've really come to reject the notion of thinking of technology adoption as a series of one-off projects. And then I want to shift the conversation to, actually, if you talk about just academic technology as just this umbrella experience that your faculty, your staff, and most importantly, your students are experiencing on a day-to-day basis, two things. One, it is connected to every part of the education and curriculum. And two, it's always going to be evolving, right? So maybe an implementation of a product has a finite start and end date but it's part of an ongoing conversation. And so you really, what I do really is create an ongoing conversation, engaging with all the faculty about what is that experience in its entirety? And then how does this specific implementation, we're doing a course dog implementation as we speak, how does that fit into that larger evolution of what we call the university in its platforms and in its ecosystem, if that makes sense. And that way, there's an ongoing conversation. You're educating them about the whole thing, and you're also making sure they understand how this fits into that whole thing. And frankly, you're also educating them about just sort of the realities of technology, which is there's no bit magic button. There's no switch where you turn it on and everything works perfectly. There's no custom solution that does everything the exact way you want it to do. And Mm -hmm. those are just realities we have to help them understand. I love what you said about faculty being entrepreneurs. And and I've never thought about that, but, you know, entrepreneurs always have some, you know, certainly are not always the biggest fans of sort of bureaucracy and sort of top-down mandates. And so looking at it from that framework, I feel like is a, is a really cogent explanation for some of the challenges I think that's faced with, you know, rounding up faculty and getting them to make these sort of group decisions. I'm actually curious to dig in a little bit into how you think about making these decisions, these change management decisions, whether it's new technology or new processes, and how you think about top-down mandates versus more bottoms-up. Because 
you know, one of the things I think is uh, that I've found really interesting about higher education is that top-down things don't often go very well because people don't want, you know, these sort of heavy-handed leaders. There's very much this kind of group buy-in and, and you know, culture. But at the same time, oftentimes these bottoms-up committees can create, you know, a lot of inefficiency, a lot of bureaucracy, and, and, and sometimes don't really result in strong final decisions. So, I'm just curious to hear how you think about going, you know, top down versus bottoms up in terms of change management. I think the for me at least, and I'm, you know, I would not say I am always right in everything, but from my experience, let's call it, I think, and generally because I'm a very difficult person, I tend to reject binaries, right? And so, if the two options are it has to be top down or bottom up, I will say neither is going to work well. And so what I've often found is you have to have permeability. It has to connect together. And, and what I would say is this: you have to have mechanisms for hearing concerns, pain points and innovations and ideas from faculty. Right. So you have to have mechanisms for doing that and fostering and recognizing and owning their incredible contribution and importance. But fundamentally, when it comes to technologies, at some point, there has to be a trigger to make a decision. And that does have to be top down. And one of the reasons for that is early on, I'll just give you one example. At a previous institution, very much involved in curriculum development for building online programs at scale. Uh, and we went, I, I kind of led the institution from, you know, sort of one point in their online evolution to another. And it was very much a part of that. And, and what we saw was a lot of bottoms up faculty identification of resources. So texts, even e-text solutions. And we started with all these individual faculty who led individual programs identifying, you know, what they thought was be, would be perfect. And we ended up with 400 different solutions across the institution. <laughs> and it was impossible to support. It was impossible to implement. Like we had no control over a consistent student experience. So they were needing to use different platforms than one course to another. And it just led us to this place of that even the faculty wouldn't have wanted, right? And at the same time, though, if you just, you know, make decisions about technology in a vacuum as a, as a leader and just say, this is what we're doing, no conversation, no thought, and no engagement, they are going to come into that technology implementation saying, I don't like it, I don't think it's going to work, and then it's not going to work, right? So it has to be, a, that, and we keep coming back to that same thing, which what are your pain points? What do you want to make better? And how do we hear that and inform a decision? And okay, here's what we're going to go do. Here's why we're going to go do it. Here's why we're going direction A versus direction B. Just give them, they don't need to know the you know, ins and outs of every fine detail, but make sure it help with the art of the cell, help them understand mm. why it is we're going the direction we're going, because you're going to find that an engaged faculty that isn't by default completely resistant is the only way that you're going to be successful. That's the reality. Yeah, no, I, I love what you said there. And I think this is like a really fascinating question that I've, I've spoken to a lot of provosts and presidents about, because I think that decision by committee sometimes results in either no decision or, you know, death by a million cuts. And I think that you made such a good point, which is that, you know, you really need, it's not only a bottoms up or a top down approach. You need to meet in the middle. 
at the same time, I do find that there has been more of a sort of, well, higher ed historically, I read this really interesting textbook about higher ed administration, and it talks a lot about how higher ed institutions, you know, why do people make decisions? A lot of times the decision frameworks are like, we need to have group buy-in. It's about how do I kind of, because there's not like these hard numbers that like each individual person is gold against, you know, how much revenue did I bring in for the school or whatever that oftentimes it's about the way that, you know, someone looks or is perceived in the institution. And so I've seen actually recently that there's been more and more sort of provosts and presidents that are willing to perhaps become unpopular in the face of adversity so that they can accelerate and, and galvanize change. You know, I think an example of this is Michael Crow, whether or not you agree mm -hmm. with Michael Crow and the things that he's done at ASU, it's well documented that he was sort of very unpopular for a long time because he was doing all this change and he was laying, you know, he was doing this and that. And now looking back, a lot of folks said, whoa, like, I think a lot of these things actually were like really correct. And so like, I think this question of how do you balance being a true disruptive innovator with being this kind of person that's going to get buy-in from the, 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 the organization is like a really, really fascinating one. You're absolutely right. And, and I, I think it is such a fine balance because the moment necessitates a pretty, I would say, aggressive evolution of the institutions. And certainly you've seen success in those that are just sort of strike out and, and, and are aggressive. There are a lot of bodies along the way of other people who tried to be just as aggressive yeah. And it failed miserably. But I would say, I think I would agree with you. I see building some trust and building some transparency as sort of a core piece of that, explaining what the moment looks like, what we're seeing in enrollment, what's happening at smaller colleges. That has to be part of the conversation to say we can't just be slow and steady. We have to do some things to make sure that this place stays vibrant and sustainable in, in a world that is increasingly churning. That's how I would describe it. No, it, it makes so much sense. And I want to learn a little bit more about, you know, you shared something that I think is a really smart way to think about things, which is like, let's figure out how to solve problems rather than just come up with different solutions, right? And, and you kind of shared, hey, when adopting technology, you really focus on like, what are our biggest pain points? What can the institution accept? I'd love to just learn a little bit about like, the frameworks you've used to having gone through so many LMS integrations, you know, a couple of SIS integrations, which, you know, to, to a lot of people I know that have, have been through those, like that's like a, a whole lifetime in, in itself. We'd love to learn a little bit about your framework for prioritizing your, you know, technology and change management roadmap. Like, do you have some sort of rough framework, like, you know, financially motivated, hey, this is what's going to be best for the long-term financials of the institution. Is it like, hey, here's the biggest, most recent problem, you know, mental health for students on campus as a recent example that I know a lot of folks have, you know, are thinking about, like, would love to just hear a little bit about the prioritization of, of a change management roadmap. So again, that's such a great question and, and a, a lot to go into, but, but here's, here's how I would say it overall. Across every part of the organization, I get to be part of an ongoing conversation of sort of what we all would like to happen in blank slate. Forget whether or not the technology exists, forget how much it costs, forget everything. Okay. So I ask everyone to, the, the way I think of it is every decision that I make and every decision that we as an institution make should say, first, 
what improves the student experience or leads to a more successful student outcome or retains more students or gets more students to graduate. So improve the experience of students, improve their education, improve their completion. That's priority one. Priority two is from a faculty perspective, what decisions can we make to make it easier for faculty to do the great work that we want them to do with students? So how do we make platforms and processes more invisible? They'll never be fully invisible, but how do we make them for faculty just focus on doing the thing you're great at the most time that we possibly can? Third, faculty experience and quality of experience, right? So beyond just focus on your teaching, how do we make a good faculty experience? And I'm very blunt with the staff, Staff experience and work-life quality is important, but in that order, that's where it fits. And that, I'm just being blunt, right? So then we start to talk about, okay, two sides of the question. Where do we think we're doing really good work that we want to increase and permeate across the organization, right? So where do we know we're doing something well and what will it take to scale that? And then the reverse of that is, what is something that we agree is not working well today? Like, Okay, those are the two questions. And then I actually have across every aspect of those four dimensions I just talked about, what are our biggest wins to go scale and our biggest pain points to go solve? And then, okay, then we start talking about how big ticket are they? What will it take to solve them? And then do we have, back to your point, do we have the financial ability to, you know, is there a platform that goes, goes and does X, Y, and Z? How much does it cost? How long will it take to implement? All of those questions. It's really kind of like a product management approach. Like obviously in tech, you know, we we try to create these like, okay, what's the benefit versus what's the cost calculations? And then, you know, we sort of prioritize from there and we try to understand what our commitments are and et cetera, et cetera. But I love the way you kind of, create some bottoms up, up to that. So that you have these different areas where folks can kind of some, you know, submit these ideas and then kind of creating some ranking in terms of cost versus benefit, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's like a, a super smart approach. I'm actually curious, like I've seen different kinds of leaders approach this sort of financially based approach to technology adoption in different ways. And I'll give some examples of this. Like I've recently noticed that there's a, a a newer kind of archetype of provost that is very like business focused, financials focused, that perhaps is not someone who's like as much immersed in pedagogy, but who's very focused on like the financials of the university, right? And how do we support that through, you know, improving graduation rates or reducing our cost or et cetera, et cetera. And then I think there's like other kinds of provosts who are very you know, hey, maybe student success focused or faculty focused, but I'd be curious to get your take on how much really creating a true quantifiable financial ROI matters to decisions that you make. And like, I can say from my perspective, implementing technology at a tech company, like oftentimes it's not, you know, one, not everything's quantifiable, right? In terms of the ROI it can create. And two, like, I think there's a lot more considerations than just financials, but I'm curious, like how you think about evaluating things from a purely financial perspective or whether whether or not you think that framework is helpful. I think you have to be able to operate in that context fundamentally, because oftentimes budget decisions, financial decisions really do boil down to some ROI conversation. So whether or not that is the end all be all, and I do not think it is, 
you have to be able to speak and sell and make a case in that space. But I think my experience has been that's only, and you touched on it, that's really only part of the picture. And so when I think of ROI, I am not just talking about like a strict credits and debits accounting perspective. I'm really talking about ROI in a fuller sense. So I'm talking about things like, you know, staff capacity released to go do other work. You know, one of the things that we're talking about with some of these processes is, okay, if we implement a platform that makes the advising and registration and scheduling process more efficient and smoother for our students, there's two benefits to that. One is we get more students successfully completing the program. So there's the, that persistence argument. That's one. And you're releasing the human people that did that manual labor prior to that. You're releasing to go do other work. And we can have a conversation of, well, I, again, it's kind of like that faculty model. I'd really rather have you engaging with the student about their program than just manually putting in their course schedule. It's a little thing, right? So not, not, you know, the, the glorious future of the university, but it, that little thing matters a lot. It really does. And so when I make ROI cases, which you have to do because, you know, in a sense, there's typically a board, there's a budget sequence. And again, finances are, are finite, right? You know, there is, maybe there are some institutions out there that are just sort of where the money flows <laughs> like water. And I would love to be a part of those. I would love for my university to be one of those, right? But, but the world that we live in, there's only so much money each year, right? And so my president has to make decisions based on, you know, yep. there's only so much of this we can do. And I guarantee you, he's going to make a decision based on what's going to lead to the best student outcomes and needs help in making a case to make that decision. And that's how I think about it. I want to ask about something that, you know, let's say we put together our technology roadmap, you know, we have it nicely prioritized, we have a great ROI case. I think oftentimes there are folks within an organization that are very embedded within their existing processes to the point where it's very difficult for them to change, right? There's always going to be folks who are kind of, you know, against sort of this this kind of rapid change. And, you know, I'm curious for folks that are listening to this that, you know, are, are going through perhaps one of these technology adoption decisions or a change management decision where, you know, there's one or two people that are creating a lot of friction. Like, how do you think about, you know, kind of solving that challenge? Is it, you know, having one-on-one -on -one conversations with them and saying, hey, like, here's why I really think this is a priority. Is it about trying to change their view? I, I mean, I think you touched on this a little bit, but like, Curious about any examples or thoughts you have on just like when when there's like a thorn in in, in the change management side. It's such an interesting area that you're tunneling into because it's something I experienced less so in the context of learning management systems, hmm. but certainly in the context of like student information systems and a whole bunch of other what I would call administrative system adoptions and platforms where you come to implement. What you tend to find is there is one person, two person, five person, 10 person. There is this sort of group of staff administration that have been part of the institution. And this is not, I'm not just speaking to the experience of this, of, of, of RIMCAD. I'm talking to the experience of every institution I've been part of. And they're dedicated and they're passionate and they have built 
their processes layer by layer, year after year as the institution has evolved. And so if you come in and say, well, I've got this platform and it's going to replace all of that you've built artisanally for 10 years, there is a lot of fear. Honestly, it's, it's psychological. It's human behavior, you, you need to understand that. And so I think it's a mix of, of two things. The reality is that status quo is not sustainable. So one of the points I constantly make is I want to do what I can to be part of an institution that is growing and scaling because a growing institution is healthier than one that's not growing, especially at this moment that we're in, right? And so if we scale, Whatever you do today, if we multiply that by 10, you're not going to be able to do that, right? That's just the reality. So it's a two-part. It is a conversation. It is listening, but it is also kind of pushing at the same time. So it is that balance, and it's messy. I'm not going to lie, because you tend to, as a leader, have to push a little in an area where that is the person or group that has an expertise that you don't have, right? Yeah. And yet you are going to have to push them to change. So it's, it is a mix of sort of hearing concerns, making clear why we're doing this, showing a path that shows a place for them on the other side of it, but also kind of saying, we're doing this, we're doing this. And then one of the things that I've definitely found is it is important to accomplish that because in implementation, if they stand on the sides with arms crossed, and I've seen this so many times with the Nats IS, you end up with an SIS that doesn't do anything that you needed to do yes. because it gets implemented without the boots on the ground people that know how things actually run. So it's such a, a challenge, you know? Yeah. So this is exactly where I wanted to go next. One of the things that I think is like unbelievably common in higher education is this idea of like, we have a clear problem. We need to adopt technology to make processes more sustainable. And then like, you know, with SISs, I think this is very common. Like SIS A has, you know, is able to automate things 50% more than SIS B. But like you get into implementation and the folks on the ground are like, no, we don't want to automate this and that. And like, you know, you just end up implementing the same thing that you had initially. Like, how do you think about the balance of like how much you or, or leadership should be involved in these like micro technology decisions? Would love to just learn a little bit about how you think about your involvement in these like nuanced implementation decisions of new technology. Yeah, and, and this is, I, I think I would just call it out that I, I am far from resolved and having the perfect solution. This is something that you're touching on, and I'll take it out of the course dog implementation to make it safe, but it's exactly something that, that, that I fear. Let me put it to a different context that's outside of my, the current implementation since we're implementing CoreStock, which I know is going to go perfectly and everybody is going to do exactly. But you're exactly right. One of the concerns that I have is, you know, we have when you when you look at solutions, you have the you step away and you say, what are the big picture things that we're trying to solve? And in an ideal world, what would the process look like? And, you know, so and then you say, wow. You have, that would be great if we did that. And so you go and invest in something. And so you bring in this platform, right? But now, now we're in implementation. And now it's, you're asking people to do this and their day jobs. And you're asking to do them in three months or six months. And you have an implementation team that has their timeline that they have to adhere to. 
And I'm always afraid that in that context, that opportunities are missed to do things that are a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because that's where you want to get to. You want to get to, let's just not do exactly what we do. Let's do what we do that works well and add three things that we think could work better. And there is just that propensity during an implementation to not do that, right? Because this is work added to their day job. So I, I don't have a great answer, but, and the other part is, you know, even if I as a leader could micromanage, I am woefully ill-qualified and my teams would kill me if I went into a room and said, well, I think I should do, we should do A, B, and C when I have no context in that. So I think what I try to do is one, without talking at people, talk about this based on, and I do have some experience with it, of seeing where this doesn't go well in other contexts at other places and saying, this is a call to action. And I actually ask the vendor, right, in addition to my team, and I say, look, if you're in a meeting and you wanted to say, hey, maybe we should do B instead of A, and you feel like in that room, you didn't have the space or right to say it, or the momentum went a different direction, or if you as the vendor are like, gosh, yes, I'm agreeing to turning on field A and turning off field B, but I think it's a terrible idea. You have to let somebody know. You have to say something, yep. right? Because everybody's best interest is served by not just checking a box and saying, yes, we implemented. Everybody's best served by implementing well. So let's get there. And then there are going to be things where I've definitely done implementations of platforms where it's like, boy, we could go do this. And going to do this is awesome, but it will add an extra year and we'll have to build another system to make that real. And, and we yeah. could put that in, hey, you know what? Let's make sure we keep that on a list. Let's revisit that in a year. So there is a 2.0, a 3.0. Doesn't all have to be burned at once. That's, let's not make a decision that locks us into a path that we don't want and it makes us hard to get out of. But it's okay to say we got as far as we can get to in this cycle and we want to do this, but it's going to take a little bit more work. So we'll revisit it in a year two. Such a good point. And I think this is a fascinating like question. I can share a little bit about what my experience with this has been. And, and then I'll share like some thoughts that I've thought a little bit about in terms of like the way I think universities can, can get around this problem of adopting technology and then not actually seeing the promise. So from my perspective, one of the things that I see is really challenging is that oftentimes the conversations that have happened between the salesperson and the provost get, you know, they, they happen pre-sale and they're like encapsulated in this little bubble, right? And then you've got these implementation folks and these people who are on the ground who are running 95% of the project, right? And I think the challenge is if you don't have a really clear kickoff, executive business review and cadence both for the provost to check in with the team and for the provost to check in with the vendor, I think things can go totally off track, right? And examples of this, you raised the perfect example, field stuff. Like I want to spend another six months because I don't want to have to go type this field into this thing. Like that is something that happens in every implementation. 
And it's been a learning process for us, for me to learn that like, sometimes you need to push back on those types of things. But if I were, you know, thinking from an institution centric perspective, like I think one, you have to think about products, not just as products, but services, right? Like Mm -hmm. great vendors ideally are not just going to drop off a product you, but like provide the actual consulting because the truth is that like most of the ROI I think comes from changing the way we think about things and the frameworks more so than even the technology, right? Like the technology allows us to enable these great frameworks, but you know, with scheduling, for example, Hey, can we just like have a process for looking at underutilized overfilled sections? Like, are we scheduling all of our classes in the same prime time hours? Like technology can enable this, but it's the change to our actual business processes that creates the real benefit, right? I think you have to think about these technologies as like not just products, but like services to the institutions and consulting and how do they support with that? And then two is like, I think over communicating is always better, right? Like to mm-hmm. me, I think one of the challenges that I see from the vendor side is like when that, you know, provost or president, I don't hear from them until post-implementation. And then we're like, whoa, like what happened? And I don't think it has to be like in every meeting, making every decision. I think it's just like, can we set basic goals for what we're trying to do here, right? We are trying to improve student success via this, you know, we're trying to improve operational efficiency. Well, you know, and then I can say to you, hey, what we're not trying to do where I say things go off the rails is do, you know, every field and every possible combination so that this person's job is like 5% easier. And you agree on that up front and then you're able to check in. I think it makes things infinitely easier. But yeah, I'm curious, Colin, if you have any other thoughts on that, just because I think that's something that like so many folks, especially with SIS implementations, academic operations implementations are, are thinking about a lot. What you're saying is so true. And I've seen it a lot, particularly as, I mean, we know the growth of the ed tech industry and honestly, the amount of churn in that space and people acquiring and absorbing and shifting over and just the number of new players and the role of, I mean, the whole shift to, you know, SaaS and the implications of that have just, the ecosystem of ed tech has seen tons of investment, tons of new ideas, tons of really innovation and startups in all kinds of space, right? So there's a lot of product out there, but just because the product's out there doesn't mean that there's somebody that one knows that product really well in an academic context and has seen the ways to do it right and not right and knows how to connect that product in its best configuration the unique behaviors and structures of your institution. And third challenge can also understand and navigate what we taught, started this conversation with, which is the, the nuance of working with academic institutions with like a unique hierarchy and organizational structure and all those different things. What I just described as an implementation team is a major depth and breadth of competency. And that's a differentiator, right? So when I go look at platforms, I'm not just looking at what the platform does. I'm looking at, is there somebody there that, that they're committing to us to help us best use that platform? And that's a big miss in a lot of implementations. And you would be surprised at very large or companies with very expensive software where you go to implementation and the team, honestly, the team doesn't even know their product very well, right? I would, I've been in those meetings. I've learned from that experience, and it shocks me. Like, it's just like, you don't even, 
know how you can use your own product well <laughs> with us, right? It's crazy. So I loved your idea of like, and I, I think it is that balance. Like everybody, the leaders on both sides can't be a part of every meeting. But if we had like a single document with seven bullets of like, these are the things we're trying to accomplish, right? And if there's a regular check-in to say, you know, here's a grade, here's how we're doing on our progress towards this is an A, or this is in green or yellow, whether you do letter grades or, or colored scheme or something, but just to have a touch base and be like, okay, do we all feel like we're still in green or getting a letter A for this item as we progress through implementation? Here's another one that is actually at a little bit of risk because here's what we found in our meetings. I, I, I love that idea. It seems that good balance of not waiting till the end and not also micromanaging the process, but it's just let's all affirm why we're doing this and just do some temperature checks along the way that we all feel like we're going to accomplish what we said we were going to do. I want to thank Colin Marlair for joining us. This was an awesome conversation going super deep into change management and, and academic operations and super grateful for you joining. And, and thanks for everyone for joining us on the Academic Ops Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Course Dog. We empower academic administrators at more than 100 institutions with an integrated academic operations platform that supports on-time completions and operational excellence with academic and event scheduling, course demand projections, curriculum management, and online catalog solutions that integrate bi-directionally with your SIS. Learn more at coursedog.com.